The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we are continuing in our series in Ecclesiastes, uh, and uh, today we're talking about the eternity that God has placed in every heart. And uh, so around January 1st of every year, uh, believers all over the world make a decision to read through the Bible in a year. And Sometime around February, believers all around the world hit a book called Leviticus and are faced with a decision because up to this point, they've been taken in by the drama of, of creation and, and the fall of humanity and the Tower of Babel and the sibling rivalry between Cain and Abel uh, and the stories of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph and then then they get to Exodus with, with, with Moses taking on Pharaoh and God parting the Red Sea, delivering them through, and all this wonderful drama. And then you hit Leviticus, and it's almost as if you hit a brick wall of obscurity with tedious laws about diet, menstrual cycles, skin diseases, how you're supposed to build a building, specific blueprints, how you're supposed to eat a meal, and so on. And, and yet, there is meaning, as much meaning in Leviticus as there is in Genesis. There's a subtext there that's often easy to miss, and that is that the God who dramatically spoke the cosmos into existence is also the God who is interested in every single little detail of our lives, including the number of hairs on our head. And today's scripture is another relatively perplexing part of the Bible if you really drill down because the Hebrew word for time, this is a scripture about time, the various times and seasons of life. Time in the original Hebrew means a divinely determined or a God-determined season of your life and of my life. And there are all kinds of seasons that are described here. They're the joyful ones that involve things like birth, good health, building up, 
laughter, embracing, loving, and so on. And then there are other seasons of sorrow that include things like tearing apart and mourning and weeping and losing and dying. And in some ways, this articulation from Ecclesiastes 3 can be more confusing than Leviticus. Because it also says that all of our times, the joyful ones and the sorrowful ones, are times that have been determined by God. That God is the author of the story of our lives. He never pieces out. He's not out of the picture when hard things come any more than, you know, he's he's just as in the picture during the seasons of sorrow as he is in the picture of the seasons of joy, authoring the whole story. That's perplexing. You know, Job, who's, you know, history's perhaps greatest sufferer, second only to Jesus, says about his own life that his days have been determined and that the number of his months have been appointed by God. And then David in the 139th Psalm says, all of the days that have been ordained for me, written for me before I breathed my first breath, were written in God's book before any of those days came to be. And then you've got scriptures like Acts chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul is is giving a speech and he talks about how it's God who marks out our appointed times. And, and, and so the subtext here, just like, just like Leviticus has a subtext that God is interested in every detail of life, the subtext here is people like Job, David, and Paul, they all had deep, deep suffering in common with each other. And they're all saying in their own ways, God was in charge of those seasons also. God wrote those chapters of my life also. That's perplexing. Not everybody processes hard times like that. Uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a very uh, famous best-selling book uh, several years ago called When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and it's uh, essentially his processing of, of of a a horrible tragedy in his own life where his own son uh, died from leukemia. And Rabbi Kushner reached the conclusion that he had to make a choice between two things. Either God is completely loving but not in control, otherwise this would have never happened. A loving God would have never let this happen to my son. Or God is in control and he can't be loving because this thing did happen to my son. And the conclusion of of the book is God has to be good and loving, and therefore God was just simply not in control of those aspects of my son's story and of my story. But Ecclesiastes, as hard as it is, does not leave us with a choice like that. Instead, what Ecclesiastes does is something that the rest of the Bible does as well. And depending on our perspective, the Bible either does this for us or it does this to us. It keeps us in this place of mystery, that the God who created the cosmos, 
all the galaxies by the simple act of breathing and speaking words is also the God who cares about the number of hairs on your head. My head, those numbers have diminished over the years. The same thing can be said of the God who orchestrates the seasons of joy in our lives. He's also there writing the story, filling out the chapters, completing the manuscript in the hard times. And so I've got two headings I'd like to process this with you uh, under, and, and the first heading is that the struggle is real, and the second is that the options are only two in terms of how we deal with the struggle. So the struggle is real. In this room, there are people scattered throughout this sanctuary who identify with every season that is listed in this chapter. Some people are in a season of birth and life and vitality and embracing, and others are in seasons of of death and tearing apart and casting away stones and so on. There are chapters being lived out right now that God has written that are chapters of joy and chapters of sorrow. And so if I were to, for example, quote to you uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, where it says to every believer that God has plans for you to prosper you and not to harm you, and plans to give you a hope and a future, those truths are going to be heard differently by a person who just won an Olympic medal and a person who just got a cancer diagnosis. Or if I were to say, God so loved the world and God so loves you and nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ, those words are going to be heard different differently by a person who has experienced being cherished by the people around them all of their lives and people who have been abused and made true victims. Same words, same truths are going to be experienced very differently. Um, You know, a lot of you, because we're in Nashville, a lot of you know um, Pastor Scotty Smith, uh, who uh, planted one of the, the daughter churches of, of, of Christ Presbyterian, Christ Community Church, uh, some years ago. He was the founding pastor there. Scotty's also been a friend and mentor to me for almost 20 years, almost ever since I entered the ministry. And one of the things I remember early on that Scotty said when I was, I got my feelings hurt because somebody said something bad about one of my sermons, and he said, look, this has been my experience for years as a pastor the receiving line, you know, when you're, you're waiting at the, at, the, at the back, waiting to, you know, say goodbye to people, shake the hands, and, and have conversation with the people who want to have conversation with you. It has happened, he said to me, it's happened so many times that after the same sermon, one person will come up to me and say, that was so helpful. Thank you. And then the person right after them would come and say to me about the same sermon, that was so hurtful because we're all living in different times, in different seasons. You know, R.J. Palacio's wonderful book called Wonder, which was turned into a movie this past year, this past couple years, um, says that he built the book around this anonymous 
uh, quote that, that you know, he resonates deeply with, and I think everybody that reads the book or watches the movie resonates with as well, where he says, be kind for every person you meet is fighting a hard battle. And those of you who are living through right now a season of sorrow or difficulty or setback or pain may be asking yourself, how, how could this be said? Every person's fighting a hard-hidden battle? Truly? Uh, is that kind of comment not uh, maybe an insult or even insensitive to those of us who are suffering and yet have to watch other people around us prospering, who are in different seasons of life than we are? You know, in this very room, some of you are 10 years old, others of you are 80 years old. That's a very different life experience. You know, teenagers may resonate with the Rolling Stones song, Time is on Our Side. Yes, it is. But you wonder if Mick Jagger resonates with those lyrics anymore. <laughs> I imagine Keith Richards does, though. <laughs> the everlasting one, Keith Richards. You know, right next to each other could be sitting in this sanctuary right now a homecoming queen and a kid who's terrified to go to school because she's bullied every day. Sitting next to each other could be somebody who's making wedding plans and somebody who's just been widowed. Somebody who's just been promoted could be sitting right next to somebody who just got laid off. Somebody who was just given a clean bill of health could be sitting right next to somebody who was just told that they are terminally ill. And in verse 10, this is what makes this text, if, if you read it honestly and thoughtfully and intelligently to really dig into what it's really saying, this is what makes this, this text harder than Leviticus. All of it, it says in verse 10, every season is business that God has given. What are we to make of this? God is in the tornado in the same way that he, he, that he is in the, the gentle breeze? Really? There are two problems that, 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 that this truth precipitates in the human heart. Number one, it seems so unfair that some people are given a life that is filled with suffering, that the, 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 the chapters of hardship and difficulty and sorrow are so long, and the chapters of joy and bliss and abundance are so short, if existent at all. And then others just cruise on through life. You know, roll your windows down and cruise. With your double-wide Chevy and a lift kick, right? Uh, look, here's the other problem even the cruisers, and we've learned this up to this point in the first two chapters, even the cruisers are fighting that hard battle. You know, chapters one and two, the, the writer talks about how he's tried to build his life quite successfully, by the way, on things like sex and money and career and wisdom and power, and his conclusion is that it is all vapor. It is all vapor. Because there is this cosmic party pooper that represents the final chapter of every single one of our stories that God is writing. And it's the chapter mentioned in the first verse, death. There's a time to die. And God has appointed that time as well. The mortality rate, one person for every one person. 
But then that does beg the question, still, if I've got 40, 50 years left ahead of me, can I not delay, you know, all the morose talk about death, and can, can I just put that to, to, to the side and, and embrace it and enter in? Absolutely you can. And in fact, part of, part of the, you know, part of the, 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 the thematic thrust of Ecclesiastes is to say with this one life that you've been given, as short as it may be, enter in, and, and it says in the later verses here, be good, be joyful, take pleasure in God's gifts, verses 12 and 13. And yet, it's still so painful even when you're cruising. You know, Michelle Williams, uh, one of the, one of the uh, women in the band Destiny's Child did an interview after Destiny's Child got their, their first big break and a huge multi-million dollar record deal and, 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 a, and a tour booked for them with, with, with uh, uh, you know, in, in arenas all over the place. And she said, my initial response to our big break was depression. Depression. She says, I'm one of the top selling, f- I'm in one of the top selling female groups of all time suffering with depression. When I disclosed this to our manager, he was like, you all just signed a multi-million dollar deal. You're about to go on tour. What do you have to be depressed about? And this might be what the person who's going through a season of sorrow right now is saying about the person who seems to be cruising, who also seems to be sad. What do you have? to be depressed about. Let me tell you about my problem. Be kind because every person that you meet is fighting a hard battle. There there is a reason, we're not sure exactly what that reason is, but there is a reason somewhere in the cosmos why people living in more affluent communities have three times the rate of anxiety and depression as the national average. Everyone you meet is fighting a hard-hidden battle. And the Bible tells us why. It's because the world that is never feels like the world as we know it should be. Even when we're in the peak seasons, when we're living life under the sun, we're not fully home yet. If you're believing in Christ, if your heart is anchored in heaven, you're only partially home. It's like you're staying in a hotel right now. And home is right around the horizon, but, but you're on a road trip. You're a full-time, you know, business traveler in life. You never have actually seen your true and full home. You've actually never fully been there, and yet you're nostalgic for it because you know you've been built for it. And the more we try to manufacture an experience of heaven here on earth under the sun in this present fallen life, to, to manufacture a version of heaven with sex and money and fame and romance and power, we're going to experience sadness, even if we are one of destiny's children. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his essay called Encounter the Light. If you are really the product of this materialistic universe, in other words, if God doesn't exist and the material world is all there is, why doesn't it feel like home here? Why do you feel like an alien and a stranger? Or Chesterton said something similar. We are in the wrong world. The false optimism with the modern happiness tires us because it tells us that we fit into this world. But the true happiness is that we don't fit. We come from somewhere else. The way Ecclesiastes puts it is, God has put eternity in your heart. Read a little bit beyond the verses 
uh, that, we, that we read this morning, and you will see that. This ache that we feel, even after we've gotten the raise, even after we've gotten the concert tour booked, even after all of that, the ache that we feel is nostalgia for a home that we have yet to fully experience. And so the options in dealing with that are two. There is either human philosophy or divine philosophy. This is a very philosophical book. But with human philosophy, every version of it, you're going to have to kill your heart or kill your head in some way, shape, or form to cope with suffering. And so let's talk about that. Philosophy under the sun. Everyone is a philosopher. Everyone has a version of reality in order to help themselves and others to live with reality. You know, Tim Keller gives sort of a, a, a wonderful catalog that I'm, I'm borrowing from here from, from several of the different human philosophies around the world that try to cope with suffering. There's Eastern philosophy where, where suffering is presented as an illusion. And what you do is you rise above the suffering by telling your heart that it doesn't exist. It's just suffering, hardship, difficulty, it's just an illusion, mind over matter. And then there's Stoic philosophy. Bertrand Russell was a proponent of this, as well as the ancient philosopher Marcus Aurelius. Stoicism would say, indeed, suffering is real, but you need to defy it. You need to rise above it. You need to, you know, punch it in the gut is what you need. You you need to keep the stiff, stiff upper lip by telling your heart not to care. You know, there's this movie Uh, where Jimmy Cagney is flying an airplane, and it becomes clear that the airplane is going to go down. You know, the airplane is malfunctioning, and it's going down, and he's he's descending to his death, and there are mountains beneath him, and, and right before the plane crashes, he spits at the mountain, and then, bam, dead, gone. What does Stoicism get you? Death. There's dualism, Another philosophy that tells us there's this cosmic battle between two equally powerful forces of good and evil, and you need to decide which side you're on and then live accordingly. And I I think that's where Rabbi Kushner ultimately landed. I have to choose good over, over the alternative, otherwise I won't be able to live with myself. And then there's existentialist philosophy, which says there's no meaning in the universe because there's no God. This material world is all that there is. And so what you need to do is create your own meaning by telling your heart to be a good person, whatever being a good person means to you. But the problem with that that morally relativistic point of view where, where my truth and your truth are equally valid is that you can't legitimately say that Mother Teresa was any more virtuous than Adolf Hitler. Because what are you appealing to? If truth comes from within us, who's to say whose truth is superior to somebody else's? You say, well, you you determine that by what the majority thinks. Well, whose majority? The German majority thought that the extermination of the Jews was just fine for a time. And then there's the hedonist philosophy that says that the solution to suffering is to tell your heart to love yourself and yourself alone. Don't attach your heart to anything or to anyone. Look out for number one, the moralistic philosophy. 
says that the world is filled with good people and the bad people and you need to be one of the good people and part of being the good people is to blame the bad people for all the world's problems. Tell your heart that the problem is out there. You know, you remember this part in the scriptures where the people around Jesus said about the man who was born blind, who was it that messed up? Who was it that sinned? Who, who is it that's to blame? Was it this man or was it that his, his parents that committed a sin that would make him born blind? And Jesus says, neither, none of the above. Then there's the political, the partisan political philosophy, which also says blame people for the suffering and the, the, the things that are going wrong in the world. Blame the liberals. Blame the conservatives. Blame the rich. Blame the poor. And so on. And then there's the masochist philosophy where you tell your heart to welcome suffering, to assume the identity of a victim, to assume that you are superior because of how much you have suffered to people who have suffered less than you, and that becomes the identity that you carry throughout your life. All of these philosophies which come from, from a human place, from a perspective under the sun, without respect to God will lead you to either kill your heart or to kill your head or both. But then there's the feed your heart philosophy. This is the philosophy beyond the sun. This is the one that helps us to think God's thoughts after him, which include what it says in verse 11, that God makes everything beautiful in its time. There's that word time again. God makes everything beautiful in its time, including even pain and sorrow and injustice. Now, Genesis chapter 37 through 50 gives us the story of Joseph, who is kidnapped by his own brothers, thrown into a ditch, then pulled out of the ditch because throwing him into the ditch wasn't profitable, sold him into slavery, made money off of, of his oppression, left him, you know, to, 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 to the wolves of Egypt, he gets falsely accused for trying to seduce a woman who actually tried to seduce him. Then he gets thrown in prison for years for that. And, 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 and he's got, he's got uh, Ecclesiastes in his heart the whole time. That part of Ecclesiastes that says, when you're in the muck, fear God, keep His commandments. Bloom wherever you're planted. And eventually, because of this, he gets elevated to the position of prime minister of Egypt, and there comes a time where the people of Israel, the brothers of Joseph who had sold him out, need him because a famine's coming, and they're without resources, and Egypt has an abundance of resources, and then they're face-to-face -face with their brother Joseph, and they're fearing for their lives. He's going to get us back. He's going to destroy us. We're dead. And Joseph says, uh, do not be afraid, brothers, because what you meant for evil God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. God makes everything beautiful in its time. And then we look at this and we think, wait a minute, Joseph, God took everything from you. What kind of father, let alone what kind of father in heaven would take everything from you? And then this would be your conclusion. You know, maybe Joseph had read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And if you've read that, it's a bestseller on today's, you know, Amazon list and such. There's a section where he says at some point, parents need to decide whether they prefer their children to be happy or durable. 
which is it going to be? And maybe God, out of love for Joseph, preferred to make him durable even more than he preferred to make him happy. And in fact, his durability might have been the key to his true and full and long-term happiness. The other thing that is said here in verse 14 is that whatever God does endures forever. And so Joseph's seasons of suffering were really just a small sentence in a broader story, the last chapter of which has already been written and published and is everlasting. And in that last chapter for Joseph and everybody who's anchored into Jesus Christ through faith, here's what happens in that last chapter of the Godward life. Joy becomes the durable thing, and sorrow becomes the terminal thing, and the immortality rate becomes one person for every one person. That's what our brother Jeremy Casella calls death in reverse, right? Resurrection, all things new, every day better than the day before. That's the last and everlasting chapter of every life that we wrongly assume ends with there's a time to die. You know, Bonhoeffer has said about death, and he said this while he was awaiting execution for opposing Hitler. He said the death of a Christian is a supreme festival on the road to freedom. As we look ahead even to our own death, we've got a festival right in front of us every Lord's Day, which just like Jesus on the cross required some death in order to become nourishment for us. You know that some wheat had to die, some eggs had to die, some grapes had to die in order to prepare this feast that's going to nourish us in a few moments, in the same way that Jesus had to die in order to secure the final everlasting chapter where God will make everything beautiful in its time, where joy will become the durable thing and sorrow will become the terminal thing. And so, in the meantime, what do we do? If you read on to verses 12 and 13, it says, do good, be joyful, and take pleasure in God's gifts. Enjoy the ride, in other words, as much as you can. Even if your opportunities are only a few, enjoy the ride. When you have an occasion to enjoy a good meal or to enjoy a kiss or a book or a piece of music or some deep sleep or a decent sermon or a stellar sermon like the one Russ preached last week, which you should most certainly download and listen to and savor if you haven't listened to it yet. These are all foretastes. Consider every little good gift, even in the sorrowful seasons, as a care package sent to you from your true and everlasting home. Let's believe that, shall we? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that as the psalmist David, who during certain seasons of his life, was betrayed by his king who wanted to throw a spear through his body, who was betrayed by his own son, Absalom, 
who wanted to take over his position and worked against him in the attempt to do so, who lost a child in infancy, who was overwhelmed with his own guilt and shame, that same David was able to write in the 23rd Psalm about how you prepare a table for him even in the presence of his enemies. I love how the Apostle Paul shouted at death and said, Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Instead of spitting at a mountain, the Apostle Paul spits at death because he knows that death will lose because Christ has won, because Christ is risen. And because of this, we are now fed by a table that promises an everlasting joy that will be durable and a temporary sorrow that is, in fact, beyond the sun, terminal. Thanks be to God. Amen.